Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, I would invite you to go ahead and turn in a copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And we will look together at the traditional text for this Sunday. Again, what's known as Epiphany Sunday or Three Kings Sunday, more commonly in the Western Church. We'll look at the text this morning, which is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Again, Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest of the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child of Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it stands forever and never. Amen. The theme of this passage and the theme of our message is that phrase, which is a colossal understatement in so many ways, but you might have noticed it right there off the bat. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Again, this idea of it being after is this simple phrase or simple statement, but there's no way for it to be a colossal understatement, no way for it not to be. For again, after Jesus was born is (laughs) the rest of history. After Jesus was born, again, that's a phrase that we read over so quickly because we're used to it and because perhaps we've been in the church a long time, and yet think of what that means. Think of what we just celebrated at Christmas. Think of the scandal in the, in, the, in the best sense of the word, if you will, the scandal of the gospel, like we talk about. The scandal of the incarnation. That God himself would be born in human flesh. That God himself would come down from the highest of heavens. Think of our passage in Isaiah. The highest of heavens inhabiting eternity. 
and would come and dwell with the lowly and the contrite of heart, would come and dwell again in the lowliness of a stable, of a manger, after Jesus was born, after the world was forever changed, after, again, the incarnation, after God himself became man, after God himself declared war upon the serpent, fulfilling the promise so long ago in Genesis 3 that he would crush the head of the serpent. I'm not a huge fan of, of reenactments of the gospel story in movies, though there are some that have done it decently. And in fact, The Chosen, which is out right now, you know, I, I believe is one of the better ones that have come along in recent years. But one that I'm not a huge fan of, but in this point is illustrative, uh, is Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ. Um, does some things well, some things poorly. That's true of any you know, reenactment. But one thing I love in that, um, in that movie is when in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you recall, uh, the Jesus character steps on the serpent, which was moving through the grass in that, in that one camera shot, and he steps on the serpent and crushes the head. Again, taking liberties, but pulling from the prophecy in Genesis 3 and making it clear that when God came down from the highest of heavens and came down on the person of Christ Jesus, it was to declare war upon the serpent and to begin to fight the final battle, to take back what is rightfully his, again, to fulfill the promise that started all the way back in Genesis 3. So again, think of these words this morning on Epiphany Sunday. After human history, after redemptive history reaches its highest of points, reaches the climax, reaches its apex, now what are we supposed to do? Now who are we supposed to be? Again, think of how this works even thematically following Christmas. We enter a new year and now what? We come off the spiritual high of Christmas and of beauty and time together and with family and just the magic of Christmas again into a new year with our routines beginning again and our work starting again and the house in need of cleaning because all the family finally left, Whew, right? <laughs> now what do we do? It's this mixed emotion, this feeling of letdown even perhaps, the feeling that we have when we get back from a long trip or a long Holiday. I used to talk about how when I was younger, I was privileged to go on several mission trips as a young child, or, or a student really. In fact, those mission trips really are what pulled me into ministry by God's grace. But we'd always talk that when you came home from a mission trip and came back to your real life and routine, there was this unavoidable feeling of letdown, of now what? Now who am I supposed to be? Well, again, all of this is bound up in the Christmas season. All of these realities are bound up in the gift from God, again, of his presence with us. And yet, as we know, his presence is one that is already but not yet. We celebrate his arrival there in the first advent, but now we live in that time between times where we look ahead to his second Advent. We rejoice in his first arrival like we just did at Christmas, but we long for his second Advent, the final arrival. And so again, who are we supposed to be and what are we supposed to do? 
Dr. Copan, uh, a couple weeks ago when he was filling the pulpit, mentioned, I think helpfully, uh, the, the tension between what was uh, D-Day in World War II, remember, and Victory in Europe Day. You know, for all intents and purposes, D-Day, the invasion of the Allies on June 6, 1944, was what ended the war. Think of that with the arrival of Jesus. And again, we're not, don't, don't get me wrong, we're not conflating the allies. and you know, There's a lot of differences, but for the point of illustration, think though of Jesus and his arrival long ago in Bethlehem. is D-Day, so to speak, if you will. It, for all intents and purposes, it signals the end. The victory is won. The battle has been fought. And yet, as we know, D-Day, June 6, 1944, gives way to the final ending of the battle, the final surrender Victory in Europe Day, May 8, 1945, a year later. And again, so it is with us. In this war of wars which Christ wages against the evil one, his first arrival marks the end of sin and death. It marks the defeat of Satan. But the finality of his victory is not declared until his second coming. So again, we live after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And so what are we to do and who are we to be? This text gives us three responses. It gives us three realities that we should marinate on here in a new year. And the three realities are this. We should reject fear. We should respond in faith. And we should reach for the future kingdom. Reject fear, respond in faith, and reach for the future kingdom. How does one this morning, in the beginning of a new year, in 2024, how does one reject fear? Well, the answer for us is by not responding the way that Herod does. That if you look at the responses in this text of the characters that it involves, we should not respond like Herod. The text says that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. If you know the background of this text, and many may, you know that there is a lot there being said in a little. Just like when we say after Christ or after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and that's a loaded phrase which we just sort of teased out its implications Well, the same thing is true when we hear this, that that Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. The reason that is the case is because Herod here is Herod the Great. He's a man who is not technically Hebrew, but a man who has been appointed as king of the Judean kingdom or the Judean province. He is a ruler, a propped up ruler of the Palestinian region for the Roman Empire. And he's come to know, be known as Herod the Great, not because of any greatness of character. In fact, you might already know that. <laughs> and that, that, that becomes very true as the text goes on. He is not great because of his character. He is great because he is skilled in building. He is skilled in construction, including his oversight of the temple there in the day of Jesus. But he is known as one who is corrupt and ruthless, And so while that combo enables him to keep peace in the region, it's also the very reason why here the people are troubled. 
Because if the king is troubled, then what might he do next? He's the crazy uncle maybe you had at your Christmas dinner, okay? Who might say something inappropriate in front of the children, okay? What's crazy uncle Eddie going to do now or, you know, whatever. He's this loose cannon. He is this person, again, writ large, you know, Herod's much worse than that because as we know, he is capable of, 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 of murderous commands, all these kinds of things. But Herod here is this loose cannon ruler who has the people of that day walking on eggshells. However, like most bullies or like most despots, his reaction and his ruthlessness are really cover-ups for what? He's afraid. This big, bad King Herod, this big, bad bully of a ruler or this ruthless monarch is such because he's afraid. Herod here is the picture of fear. What if the prophecy is true? What if these magi are correct? What if indeed a king had been born in the city of David, who unlike Herod, had a true and rightful claim on the throne? What, just what if a more powerful king draws near? Then again, what would that mean for Herod? Well, Herod would lose his seat of power and Herod would lose his autonomy. And Herod here, in a word, would cease to be king. Now, of course, Herod doesn't realize in this moment, and he has no idea, that the kingdom that Jesus comes to establish and the, the reign that he comes to, to set up is one that is not concerned with the, the temporal nature of earthly kingdoms. That the kingdom which Jesus brings, again, is not limited to the confines or the province of Judah. In fact, it's laughable to think that. That this is the king of kings we're talking about. This is, again, the holy God of the universe. This is the, the potentate of time, as the hymn calls him. This is the great ancient of days, the one who rides on the clouds, as Psalm 68 says whose eyes are like lightning and whose voice is thunder. You see, he is not concerned with this, or not concerned only, if you will, with this little kingdom that Herod rules over. And yet in this moment, all Herod knows to do because of his misinformed fear is to clutch tighter to what he possesses. And if you think about us this morning... Again, the contexts are different, and the time is different, but it's still possible for humankind to react like Herod. Isn't that true? That we can hear the Christian message, we can hear the gospel, again, that God is the creator, that we owe him absolute allegiance. Again, think of the song we sang a few moments ago, take our lives and let them be wholly consecrated unto thee. Take my moments and my days, let them flow in ceaseless praise. Right? We have this idea here in the gospel that God is the creator of all and we owe him absolute allegiance. And we can also though hear that this creator God demands such of us, but his demand is ultimately good and it's grounded in love. Why? Because his creator also became the redeemer. In fact, this creator God, who is the redeemer, saves us precisely because of our lack of allegiance and our lack of obedience to his 
commands. And so because of that, then, he rightly asks for our loyalty and our faithfulness. Because of such love, he rightly does rule over us and reign. However, we, like Herod, if we're not careful, can hear that and have the tendency to reject him in fear because we don't ultimately want any authority over us. We don't want anybody over us. Not even one this good, perhaps. We don't want accountability for our lives, our actions. We hear of the arrival of King Jesus. We hear the gospel. And if we're not careful, we can view it as a threat to our personal kingdoms. Like Adam and Eve before us, we prefer to be our own gods. And yet, if we're honest, what does such self-focused kingdom building look like? What does such self-interest actually get us? Well, if we're honest, and perhaps 2023 was a year that was premised on those things. Well, if we're honest, what does such endeavor get us? It gets us nowhere. It gets us searching but never finding, running but never resting, always trying to accumulate and take but never actually having anything. It shrinks the horizons of our lives and doesn't expand them. Again, this is the posture of most in our world today, and yet how sad, really, how small is a world where we are the center. I've mentioned it before, and you know it's just a great tale which captures it, but Tolkien's timeless work, The Hobbit, captures this picture beautifully with the character Smeagol, who is known as Gollum in Lord of the Rings. And I know your nerd alert just went off if you're not a big fan. But Smeagol, if you remember, is the one who hoards that ring of power, which Bilbo, the hobbit, eventually finds. But because of his hoarding of this ring of power, again, he lives this life of utter darkness of fear, not faith of any kind. He hides from the light. He has this self-interest and personal kingdom. And if you remember, he clutches what he calls the precious. But in doing so, it takes from him and it shrinks the horizons of his life. It promises to give him life but only consumes him in the end and makes him stretch thin, Tolkien describes him as. And this is exactly what we see with Herod. A self-indulged man building a self-focused kingdom in such a way where he's not some revered and respected monarch, but he's this petty and paranoid man who is a slave to his own appetites. One who can't see the reality of God coming to dwell with us actually makes our lives bigger and actually expands the horizons of our lives. What does Christ say when he is fully grown and teaching I have come that you might have a life and have it abundantly. That you might have life and have it to the full. You see, Herod cannot see this, and so he couches and he cowers himself in fear. And so how are we to respond? Well, again, not like Herod, but we're to respond in faith. That we reject fear, but we receive him in faith. And this is the response of the Magi. If you notice, their reaction in every way is the opposite of Herod's. Herod hears the news, 
And like many can in our world today, Herod hears the gospel and he clutches tighter to his possessions, to his throne. The Magi hear the news and they leave their homes and their kingdoms and their affluence behind. Herod hears the news and he wants to remove the threat. But again, the Magi hear the news and they themselves go to not remove the threat, but to revere the Lord, to revere the King of Kings. The Magi leave behind, again, what they have to find something bigger and brighter and more satisfying than themselves, namely the King who has come. And again, there's this stark difference here because when they hear the news that Christ was born in Bethlehem, when they hear the news that the true king, the return of the king, again, think of Tolkien and the last installation of the Lord of the Rings, the return of the rightful king, when they, the Magi, hear this news, they don't fear that this king will take, that he'll take their lives and their freedom and their joy and their autonomy and their meaning and their purpose. But instead, they themselves realize, as monarchs themselves, that it's only the king of kings who can provide what they're looking for. That their personal kingdoms cannot, their affluence cannot, their prestige and position cannot. They have it all, and yet they realize that only the king of kings can provide what it is they truly need. Unlike Herod, who fears he will come and only take. Ephesians 4, 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to mankind. You see, it's this idea that when the true king would come, and this king who is born that day in Bethlehem, we know will eventually grow, and he will ascend to that counterintuitive throne, if you will, namely his cross. He will be enthroned in this peculiar, peculiar glory where a crown of thorns will be put upon his head. And he'll be enthroned as a king that many weren't looking for, namely this saving king who would atone for the sins of his people, but then in doing so would ascend into heaven to his rightful throne. And then what does he do, Ephesians tells us? as he leads captives in his train, as he leads us as the redeemed who have been pardoned and who have had our sins forgiven, what does he do here? He now gives gifts, it says, to mankind. He dispenses of his royal treasury to you and to I by faith. And it's the magi here who realize this, that the king has come again to set us free from slavery to self and to bring us these very gifts, not to take like Herod feared, but to give, to give a peace that we can never find apart from him, to give us the security of knowing that we belong to God, that we are welcomed, that our restless hearts can finally find the rest we seek in his presence. Again, the Magi in their faithful journey leave kingdoms behind and dispense treasure. They embark on what was then a dangerous an arduous journey. Because the Magi here understand, again, what Jim Elliot, that missionary martyr in the 50s, would say later. 
that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. This is the response of faith. Laying all we have at the feet of King Jesus, our treasures, our priorities, our power. Again, as you enter a new year, what part of your life, what part of my life do I still clutch in fear? But what part of your life is God calling you to lay at his feet in faith? You see, again, if we take Ephesians 4 seriously, God gives us gifts. Again, not just monetary or material, but he gives us personalities. He gives us places in life. He gives us influence and passions. He gives us circumstances and situations. And we're to give all those things back to him in sacrifice and in service, again, just like the Magi here do with their treasures. And we might not use them to build personal kingdoms, but to advance the kingdom of Christ. You see, this is what produces the full and satisfying life, where we use what God has given, again, his gifts and his treasures, to advance his kingdom and not our own. Again, the contrast here of Herod and the three kings is profound. And that contrast can be profound in our lives as well if we insist this year on rejecting fear and instead responding in faith. But then finally, finally, what are we to do here last in the text? We're to reach for the future kingdom. You see, the kingdom, again, that we speak of is this kingdom that Jesus inaugurated then but is still faithful to deliver in its fullness, like we talked about. He, he, he comes and he sets up the kingdom, but we still look ahead in the future for when it will come and be finally culminated. But if you notice here in this passage, Right here in the beginning, just like if you thought about Genesis 3, which we've mentioned a few times, and there were, there were seeds of prophecy, and there was this foreshadowing of what was to come when, when God would return and crush the head of the serpent, and he would reopen paradise, he would reopen the garden of God to those of us who are redeemed. But right here in this story as well, right here as God inaugurates new creation, if you want to think of it that way, there are seeds of the end. It's a movie preview almost, right here in the manger. Because if you, if you notice here, there is this picture of a kingdom of saved sinners. But it's a kingdom that is made up of all kinds of people. That it's a kingdom, again, of those who are redeemed from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we see this with the very presence of the Magi. The Magi who have come here from the east. This word Magi is really a word for astrologer. It's the root word which ultimately informs that word magic. You can hear it there, Magi and, and magic. These are learned astrologers, possibly from an eastern empire or perhaps simply from nearby Arabia. But in either case, their presence here in the manger 
as one of the early audiences to Christ's birth, is, this self, is in itself this striking picture. It's a living parable, if you will, meant to tell us something. Because again, if there's the contrast between Herod and the, the Magi here, there's also a contrast between the Magi and who else was present at the birth of Christ, or at his, his announcement, at least? The shepherds. The shepherds. Remember the lowly shepherds we talked about? During the Christmas season? Well, again, here's now this beautiful compliment of the shepherds, lowly, Hebrew, blue collar, like we talked about, members of a lower social class and standing in their day. And now the Magi, who are foreign, not Hebrew, more prestigious, members of a white collar part of their day and age, if you will. So that right here at the birth of Christ, in the inauguration of his kingdom, we get this beautiful picture that it is a kingdom for all kinds. That it is a kingdom for every demographic. It is a kingdom, again, of every tongue, tribe, and nation, as he is the king over all. And our hope, again, is that the kingdom which began that starry night in Bethlehem will continue to expand to the four corners of the earth if we only have the eyes of faith to see it. And that should be our hope even today as people who, who, again, live here in the West or live here in 2024 or live here in Palm Beach County. We look around at times, we go, man, is church, is church on, the, on the rise, on, on the decline? You know, we look in our own building and go, man, this, was one day, this used to be full one day years ago, decades ago. Will it ever be full again? We hope. We, we strive for that. But in order for that to happen, we have to reject fear. <laughs> we have to respond in faith. And we have to go. We have to do exactly what the Magi do here, to leave behind our personal kingdoms, to leave behind our, our comfort and our affluence and go and tell and share that people would come in and fill this place up, that the kingdom of God would advance here at Lake Osborne. But even if that doesn't happen or, or it doesn't happen to the extent that we would like, our consolation is that, again, the kingdom which Christ inaugurated is a kingdom for every tongue, tribe, and nation, and a kingdom which has gone to the four corners of the world. And so while the church may be on the decline here in suburban, you know, North America, as you know, it is blossoming in so many other places the underground church in the third world, the underground church in persecuted countries, the global south, you know, is seeing a revival and a renewal. It's amazing even how in some of our mainline denominations, if you follow how, how you know, church politics and so forth have gone, a lot of our mainline denominations today in North America have completely sold themselves out, have completely abandoned the truth, and they have forsaken the gospel, and they have forsaken... Um, right doctrine and it's our brothers and sisters often in this is happening in the Methodist church that the African diocese there is the ones who have remained faithful and the North American brothers and sisters have, have rejected it and so again we might see these ebbs and flows where the church here seems to be on the decline but thanks be to God his kingdom is bigger than this church and it's bigger than this country even it's a kingdom of all tongue tribe and nations. And so again, our hope is that it is continuing, even when we can't see it in front of us, 
But again, our privilege is to participate in its building here as God allows us to. That again, we might be a part of his work. But we must reject fear. We must respond in faith. We must reach for, again, that future kingdom that the glimpse that we are given here will only become brighter and more beautiful when the fullness of his kingdom arrives and we are seen faithful to plow the field and be a part of its arrival. And you see that is our closing point, is that the kingdom which Christ here inaugurates is the kingdom that then he gives us gifts and treasures as we talked about in Ephesians that we might now take those gifts and employ them in the world where he has placed us. And so we can start 2024 with resolutions, those are good. We can start 2024 with desires, those are, those are good. But whatever they might be, may they ultimately turn not on just our self-improvement, though that's important, take care of ourselves, be healthy, make right choices, but may it ultimately a resolution be our reaching for that future kingdom. That kingdom which we know is coming in fullness. God has guaranteed it. He's given us the deposit of his Holy Spirit. And so it's not even a, a futile reaching. You know? It's not, not even a hopeful reaching like our resolutions sometimes are. right? But it's a guaranteed, assured reach. That the king will return. He'll return. But will he find us to be faithful in building the kingdom that he has promised. May it be so for us here this day at Lake Osborne, not just today, but every day of this year that he has given to us. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for what you have done. We thank you for Christ being born in Bethlehem your Son, our Savior, that we again might be brought back to you, our rightful Heavenly Father, and welcomed. And Father, we thank you for the kingdom which you have started, the kingdom which is ours by faith. Would you empower us, we pray, to remain faithful to the kingdom you have called us to, and to again be faithful to its advancement in whatever ways you have called us to do so. It's different for all of us, but we are called to serve you, the rightful king. And so would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to discern in this new year what that is. And would you bless our efforts, we pray, again, not for our glory, but for yours. So we thank you, we praise you, we love you. In Christ's name, amen.